As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the show. I'm Justin Briley, theology and apologetics editor for Premier. And today's show brought to you as ever in partnership with SBCK, Tom's UK publisher, and NT Write Online, Tom's uh, publisher of all his video teaching material. Uh, Tom is a renowned UK-based historian, New Testament theologian, and he's going to be answering your questions today on other religions, Judaism and Gnosticism. Well, there are among the topics that he'll be tackling on today's programme, which is the final one of 2020. We're taking a little break over the Christmas period and we'll be celebrating our 50th episode with our first show of the new year. Of course, Christmas is looking a bit different for everyone this year. Uh, not so much celebrations, festivities and family gatherings as we're used to, but we're praying for a good Christmas nevertheless, wherever you find yourself this Christmas and uh, a very happy new year as well. Uh, so if you'd like more from Tom, don't forget you can subscribe to our newsletter at askntwrite.com. And if you do that, you'll be in the running to win those three, one of those three sets of books that we're giving away to celebrate our 50th episode. Uh, those are God and the Pandemic and Broken Signposts, two of Tom's most recent books. We've got three sets of those to give away to subscribers, but you have to be subscribed to the newsletter. Again, that's askntwrite.com. And while you're there, you might want to consider giving to support the show uh, as we approach the end of the year. Uh, we're looking for your gifts, if you're able to give, to support this show and to continue to bring Tom's thought and theology to wider audiences. We'll even send you an ebook based on the show, Tom Answering 12 Questions on the Bible, Life and Faith. If you want to do that, again, it's askntwrite.com and click on Give. For now, let's get into your questions on today's show. Welcome back to today's edition of the programme with myself and Tom. We're taking your questions today on other religions. Um, now, one person who recently passed away uh, that we're both somewhat familiar, probably you more than I, though, Tom, was uh, the former chief rabbi, Lord Sachs. And uh, it was a rather sudden announcement, actually. Um, I, I had been aware um, that he had had cancer, but we were still in conversation with his office even even up to the point where i had that uh, you know surprise notification of his death um about possibly bringing you on with him in the new year uh, mm-hmm. for a conversation for for my unbelievable series um so that came as a real a real surprise to me and a, a great loss to the uk uh the faith community um what did you know him particularly had you met him 
Tom, yourself? I, the first time I met Jonathan was um, at the Lambeth Conference in 2008, where Rowan Williams had invited him to be one of the main platform speakers. Uh, he did a marvellous address. Apart from Rowan's own addresses during the Lambeth Conference, it was, for my money, easily the best um, address of the whole three weeks. And because the, the Anglican communion was thinking a lot about covenant at the time, and Rowan asked him to come and talk about covenant. And he did this amazing biblical, but also practical exposition of what it means to be in covenant with God and, and so on. Um, and it was, it was an extraordinary, I mean, most of us had heard him many, many times on the radio because he used to do Thought for the Day, which is a three-minute slot at 10 to 8, usually on Radio 4, and, and millions of people in Britain listened to that, and he was always superb at distilling some nugget of wisdom into those three minutes. But I'd never heard him go on for 45 minutes before, and I could have listened to him for four hours, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating there, because he was, he was brilliant, he was funny, he was philosophically acute, he was absolutely down-to-earth. And I got the privilege of sitting next to him at dinner um, and discovered um, when we were introduced uh, that he had recently read my book, Surprised by Hope. And I was surprised and, <laughs> and delighted by that. And he said, well, hope is what we all need. And so we talked about hope and so on. And I've read most of his books. I recently read his new book, Mor Morality. And it seems to me it was a, a, amazing to have a Jewish teacher writing a book on morality and for it to be there in the big new book section in Waterstones, jumping out at you. Um, you know, who would have thought in our uh, post-liberal, et cetera, et cetera, age that such a thing would be? But he had that profile that people trusted him because he talked sense and he came across as a, as a nice and good and wise man. And people basically like to hear from nice and good and wise people. Um, and he had, had the ability to do that. But perhaps if I can, if I can just tell one story about Please him, do. which, yeah. which, which um, uh, some, I mean, I, I met him several times thereafter for, through various points. Oh, and um, I, I sent him a copy of my biography of Paul when it was uh, in draft before it was published, because I wanted to be sure that I wasn't saying anything about Paul that a Jewish friend would say, oh, we Jews would never have put it like that. And I said, Jonathan, please tell me if there's anything that kind of sticks in your throat in the way that I'm talking about Paul's upbringing and so on. Um, and I got this lovely message back saying there was one line on page 231 or wherever it was. He said, I don't think we would ever say it like that. And I went through and it was very easy. I saw the point, very easy to turn it around differently. And then he wrote a wonderful blurb for the book. He did. Um, which uh, I, I almost wept when I saw it. There was the sheer generosity of it. And I wrote to thank him. And I got this lovely letter back saying various things, but then saying, may God continue to bless you so that you can continue to bless the rest of us. And I thought, well, that's what we should be saying about you. But that, that generosity from a chief rabbi to say that to a Christian bishop. But then at the Lambeth Conference in the Q&A from 2000 bishops asking him questions, sending them up and row and reading them out to him, um, somebody said, how do you as a Jew see the Christian mission over the years? Does it worry you or whatever? Jonathan, typical rabbi, answered a question with a question. He said, how many Jews are there in China? <laughs> of course, what on earth is that about? <laughs> and then I forget the exact number. I think he said at the last count, there were eight Jews in China. Gosh. And then he said, when I heard that, I knew two things. First, there'll be nine synagogues. And second, pretty soon, somebody will be saying they're running the country. Which is the, <laughs> ouch. Yes, of course, wow, we get yeah. the point. And then he said, 
how many Christians are there in China? And whatever it is, 60 million or something extraordinary. Then he said, you have done what we were meant to do. You have taken the news of this covenant God to the ends of the earth. I sat there thinking, you're the chief rabbi. I don't know if you're supposed to say that. Oh, my goodness. You could have heard a pin drop in that hall. Um, A sense that he was basically saying we're in the same business, but you have this vision of God which happens to be focused in Jesus. I talked to him about that. As far as he was concerned, the history of Christian anti-Semitism was so horrible, and he knew so many people who'd been totally ruined and and destroyed and damaged by it that he just couldn't turn around and say oh yes fine let's let's uh, accept this Mm. christian thing then but the sense that we were both in the business of serving this covenant god was huge and powerful and warm and and welcoming Mm. and and i dedicated a book to him actually i can say this now that he's dead um i asked him if i could do it and he said but please please don't use my name because it'll get me into trouble (laughs) so it's my book god in public is dedicated to a wise and generous friend that was jonathan there you go um what what uh just so lovely to hear those stories and your reflections on him um i wish we could have brought you together for a you know a recorded discussion but but that that was not to be um but there was a lot of willingness i i will say from yeah i'm sure to make it happen it was it was just you know events weren't didn't allow it and by the way um if you uh, are a podcast listener and you'd like to um hear an interview i took with um uh jonathan sachs four years ago on the occasion of his receiving the templeton prize um it's available on the profile podcast if you'd like to go and check that out and we have a really interesting discussion actually on his approach to jesus as a as a jew um well we, we've got another question on that um a little later on uh that coming from a listener but let's uh, let's start uh in in a more sort of uh, big picture area um when it comes to issues around other religions uh mike in again adelaide australia today says uh i've listened to the ask entry write anything podcast from the day dot and i love it uh the humble approach has made a huge impact on my life thank you so much mike now, Mike says, my postgraduate research has acquainted me with the traditional religious and spiritual systems of indigenous Australians. Through this, I've encountered a worldview that contains so much beauty. As Christians, do we have a monopoly on truth? How does God interact with people groups that have never heard the gospel? Does he speak to them? And in turn, can God speak to us through these other worldviews and perspectives? It seems to me that people often approach these questions by affirming the value of cultural practices while siloing off these spiritual or religious elements. But this seems like an arbitrary and probably very Western division, especially since many other cultural groups make no distinction between their cultural practices, the material world and their spiritual beliefs. So there's a lot in Mike's question there. He'd love to hear your thoughts, Tom. Wow. Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks, Mike. And I'm sure there are many people who wrestle with exactly the, these these issues. Um, I start from the perspective, the biblical perspective, that all humans are made in the image of God and that that image is not uh, defaced or it's defaced, but it's not erased by the fall. Um, you can see that because in the Noah stories, it's still clear that uh, humans are to be regarded as in the image of God. And therefore, it is no surprise to me, but rather a matter for delight when people who have very different worldviews and belief systems, etc., to what I have, um, do all sorts of things which do seem to bring something of the beauty and delight of God into the world. 
Um, I would say that at its best, that then lands you up with the big questions, which are what I addressed in my book, Broken Signposts, which we talked about in a different uh, podcast, where, yes, there is amazing beauty in the world, but how come it doesn't actually get you where you might think it should, and so on and so forth. So it raises questions which are not well answered then by Western Christians coming in with flat feet and heavy hands and saying, um, you haven't got our system, therefore you're out of line. Um, And so often, as we now know, um, Western missionaries with the best will in the world have brought quite a lot of Western culture and indeed Western divisive thought forms about how we line things up along with a genuine faith in Jesus. And now, actually, interestingly, some countries where people have embraced Jesus are now turning around and saying, the more we know of Jesus, the less we like some of those Western thought forms you gave us along with. And so there are huge issues there, um, which uh, we, we, I think it behoves us all to be kind of careful and a bit penitent and wary as to how we then go after things. But when it comes to the question of a monopoly on truth, Um, The word truth is too big to say you've got a monopoly of it. I do want to say that Jesus himself is the way, the truth and the life. But since Jesus is the one through whom all things were made, he is the light that lightens everyone. There is a sense in which all human beings reflect some aspects of that truth of God. The question then is, what do they do with it? What do they do about it? And as I was wrestling with this many years ago, I found I had to preach one week on uh, the story in in the book of Kings of uh, Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. And Naaman the Syrian is the commander of the enemy army. So he's the big danger guy. We don't like him, but he has leprosy and the king of Syria sends him to Elisha to get cured. And what's this all about? And he makes Naaman go and wash in the river Jordan and amazingly um, Naaman gets cured. And then Naaman faces a problem. I've got to go back home to Syria. And the king, my master, is an old man, and I'm his right-hand man. And when he goes into the house of his god, Rimmon, when he bows down, I'm going to have to bow too. And he says to Elisha, is that all right? Will the Lord pardon me for doing this? Because he realizes there is no god in all the earth except in Israel that actually he sees this God can do stuff that my God can't, but I'm just going to have to bow, and is that all right? And Elisha says, go in peace. Naaman's glass is half full, and on the way to getting even more full. Simultaneously, Elisha's servant Gehazi, hearing about all this, runs after Naaman's chariot and tells some cock and bull story about how people have come and they need some help, and could he have some money and some clothes and so on. And Naaman, please, yes, have it, have it. And so Gehazi comes back and squirrels it away. Elisha knows perfectly well what's been going on. And Gehazi's glass is half empty. He's somebody who has all the privileges. He is, if you like, the white Westerner who takes stuff for granted. Yes, we've got the truth, so we're all right. So it doesn't matter what we do. And the leprosy of Naaman turns out to be landing on Gehazi. And he goes out from Elisha's presence covered in leprosy and it's that's a scary story but it says to me there are lots of half full glasses out there and as we read the story we should watch out in case there are lots of half empty glasses out there as well that doesn't solve the problem it merely says 
it behoves us to be careful, to be humble, to be sure. wise about this. And when it comes to cultural practices, well, yes, culture is not neutral. There are some cultures in which female circumcision is absolutely the norm. And I want as a human being to say this is dehumanizing. There are some cultures, including some would be Christian cultures that have equally dehumanizing practices um, and so on. So we have to be very careful. What do these cultural um, uh, practices say about who we are as a people and I totally agree that we shouldn't distinguish between the culture the material world spiritual beliefs etc we're at a point in our history where we need to be able to map all these out with uh, serious worldview mapping and, and we, we can do that up to a point but in the middle of it the question is what happens when we put Jesus in the middle here and, and does Jesus shed light on this? Does Jesus welcome this? Does he say, yes, this is wonderful now. If you follow me, we'll make it even more wonderful. Or does Jesus say, if you follow me, that's something you're going to have to give up? Because mm. both of those reactions are possible. And the church does well to pray for discernment in those situations to know how to navigate because let's let's be quite clear about it there is such a thing as neo-paganism where people say oh these traditional religions they're much older than christianity and they're much more life enhancing for my sort of lifestyle and then it turns out that they get into all sorts of stuff which i would want to say is not in fact um, in, enhancing to what it means to be a god-reflecting human mm. being mm. so it isn't a matter of oh yes there's these wonderful things whatever let a thousand flowers bloom it doesn't matter because it does matter there is such a thing as self-deception there is such a thing as sin there is such a thing as death and it's only jesus who says i have the keys of death and hell yeah it's always been significant for me and obviously with christmas approaching it's a story that will be told many times but in matthew's gospel it is the magi who are yeah. called to the the infant Jesus. And we can presume they come from a different culture, religion, Absolutely. background, but they see something. They have a portent in the heavens. And, and you know, as, as the Carol puts it, uh, you know, the great desire of every nation. For me, I, I often, yes. that helps me to think into what we can take from other yeah. religions that are, in some sense, seeking that great desire. That's even right. if they and don't and, and name it. The, the carol, of course, got it from Isaiah, which speaks about <laughs> God as the desire of the nations. Um, uh, but um, I, I remember hearing Rowan Williams speak about the Magi one year at the House of Bishops um, Epiphany meeting. And he pointed out that the Magi saw enough of the revelation of God in the heavens to get them broadly to the right place, but they went to the wrong house. They <laughs> yes. went to the court of Herod. And then it took scripture to get them from there to where Jesus actually was. Simultaneously, the people who knew the scriptures like the back of their hands didn't even bother to go and check. Maybe for some people, some of the time, it's the confluence of what is seen out in the wider world with the specific message of scripture maybe for many of us we need both the ask nt right anything podcast i hope you're enjoying today's show and the videos that we make available on the website do please consider investing in the show your financial support helps us to cover our ongoing production costs and enables us to reach many more people with Tom's thought and theology. Go to askntright.com 
and click on give and as a thank you we'll send you tom's brand new ask nt write anything ebook it's called 12 answers to questions about the bible life and faith read his answers to some of the most significant questions posed in the past year anything you give helps us to continue this show strong into 2020 and enables us to help more people to make sense of faith and grow in christian confidence again that's askntwrite.com let's go to another question um this one comes from if i can find the right one um yes eric in norway who says you have on several occasions mentioned your sense of the presence of god which seems like it has made you more secure in your faith but presumably there are people of all faiths who have the same type of sense or experience how do you react to that and in general how can we as christians have faith in our religious experiences when they do seem to be shared by people of other faiths not only the abrahamic religions by the way yeah the, the word experience is a very slippery one and actually the sense of the presence of god rather like my perception of different colors is something which is specific to me and it's very hard to know if the person standing next to me is actually having the same sense you know i've got something here which is red and uh, if you look at it how do i know that you're seeing the same as i am and people have done experiments on this when people have had cataract operations and suddenly they've said oh the pillar boxes look like I remember pillar boxes being when I was young. In other words, I have been seeing it differently. And it's the same with the sense of the presence of God. And, and that's why in my book, Broken Signposts, I've talked about spirituality as something where most human beings, some of the time, and some human beings, most of the time, know that there is an extra dimension to the world, which is way beyond the material and so on. And within that extra dimension, Many, many people have a sense of a personal presence of some sort, which can come and go, just like for many Christians that can come and go. So for me, that sense of the presence of God does come and go, partly, no doubt, because I'm sinful and foolish and forgetful and I don't say my prayers properly or whatever it might be, but also just because in the natural life cycles, some things are more vivid at some points than others. So my faith doesn't rest on that. My faith rests on Jesus, Jesus who is secure there in the middle of human history, who makes real and present the whole of the story of Israel, which is the story of God of the world and his people, and which then opens that out to me so that even if I'm not feeling anything, I can tell that story and rest in it, even though at the moment, maybe because I'm in shock or in grief or sick or whatever, I may just feel absolutely nothing. There are many people like that who just need to be able to grab onto the story of Jesus, like somebody who can't see too well in the dark, just grabbing onto a post uh, until, until things uh, can, can get light or whatever it is. So I would be wary of saying that that sense of the presence of God is the very heart of it. That is given, it seems, by God to some people more than others. That's a very odd thing to say, perhaps. But I think that's a way of saying our temperaments are very different. We react in different ways to different stimuli. And what matters is not how I feel about it, but the reality of God's self-revelation in Jesus. That, that for me, is, is where I would anchor everything. And in that sense you would say not to put too much store in claims of religious experiences in other faith traditions. It's it, That's not the thing that we um, 
anchor. The, 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 there are undoubtedly thing. great, extraordinary mystical experiences. Uh, I'm not an expert on these, but I've read enough here and there to know. And there are certain practices, whether it's the fasting practices or certain foods and certain substances, which induce a sense of another world, another reality, which can be blissful and wonderful and, and extremely meaningful. I've had friends who've had experiences like that. Um, and that's th that I, I would say nothing for or against that. That's fantastic. It's like when somebody hears an amazing piece of music for the first time and it's just as though the whole world is transformed. It's like falling in love. The question then is what you're going to do with that? Where is that anchored? Um, if that has opened up to you a sense of the mystery and larger meaning of the world, um, where is that taking you? Where is the onward journey? And that's where, again, to go on quoting broken signposts, spirituality can land up with the dark night of the soul. The people who've had the most amazing experiences can also be plunged into the deepest darkness. And the question then is, what's the anchor? Where do you hang on to? And within the tradition that I've lived in, um, that anchor comes from the Psalms all the way into the reality of Jesus, who said, my God, why did you abandon me? So if Jesus said that, um, that sense of abandonment, we shouldn't be surprised if we sometimes feel that, nor should we be too keen to put all our weight on an immediate sense of God's presence. If even Jesus found that that was taken away, then uh, that's obviously not the place where we should be hanging our hats. Let's go to another question. Um, this is anonymously sent in, but it's from Cape Town. And it's sort of identifies, I suppose, the, the elephant in the room in a way with, with what the, the lovely words you were saying earlier about Jonathan Sachs. But, but this is a question about Jewish people. And the question is, will Jews, as God's chosen people, who do not believe in Jesus, have eternal life? when the Lord returns. And this person says, for me, the Bible makes it pretty clear that you have to believe in him, Jesus, to have eternal life. But a lot of people I know, growing up evangelical, believe that Israel is still God's chosen people. Is Israel still God's chosen people? Will they get eternal life because of that? This question literally keeps me up at night, says this person. I'd so appreciate any light you can shed on this issue. Thank you. I will say, just before you launch into a response here, we did do a, a whole podcast episode actually dealing with issues around Judaism, the state of Israel and so on. If you search back in the podcast episodes, you'll, you'll see that clearly labelled. So, so those wider questions about are the Jews still the chosen people and so on have been answered at some level in uh, some depth by Tom there. But yes, I suppose the question specifically is about those who don't believe in Jesus is there still some way in which they will be welcomed in, Tom? Yes. Um, uh, the, the question that I've got it on the piece of paper, printing out what you sent, it's really two parts. Um, it, it's one, the question of, do people, including Jews, have to, quote, believe in Jesus mm. in order to, quote, have eternal life? But then there's the question of, um, eschatology of the present state of Israel being somehow a preparation for a new situation when Jesus returns. And this is then bound up with American foreign policy. And it's very interesting that I get this question in America quite a lot, because there are many Americans, and obviously this person is from Cape Town, and, and so the, the movement is larger than that, who have uh, believed in some form of dispensationalism, according to which the Jewish people have, as it were, been parked for a couple of thousand years 
waiting for then when Jesus returns and that the present state of Israel is a preparation in some way or other for that. Therefore, Christians should automatically support whatever it takes for the present state of Israel, etc. Those are extraordinary positions for a Christian to get into because actually the Bible says absolutely nothing about that. In the Bible the whole world is now God's holy land and that is not just uh, a Christian perspective which you find in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 and so on where the inheritance is the whole new creation but it's actually in Psalm 2. It goes back to the Davidic Psalms. Ask of me says the king uh, says God to the king and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost past of the earth for your possession. And there were Jewish thinkers in the first century, people like Philo and Josephus, two of the greatest Jewish intellectuals in the time of Jesus and Paul, who believed that the diaspora, the spread of Jews throughout the world, was in a way the beginning of a fulfillment of that, rather than uh, coming back to a land where then they would be at home. Rather, they saw a sense, which then the Christian missionaries picked up, that God is claiming the whole world, and the Christians say, yes, precisely because Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and he is the one who is now the Lord of heaven and earth. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth said Jesus, is given to me. That's a classic Jewish claim, not for one piece of territory, but for the whole world. And to go back from that to say, ah, but now we have this bit of territory, has absolutely no basis in scripture. And it's, it's been a long misreading of Romans 9 to 11 that has got people to that place. And that misreading itself comes from a misreading of Romans as though it's simply four chapters about how to get saved, four, four chapters about how to behave, and then all that funny stuff about the Jews and then some more stuff at the end. That is a rubbish way of reading Romans. And I've spent half of my life trying to argue for better ways of reading Romans. When we do read Romans 11, and this comes back to the first question, we find in chapter 11 verse 23 and they this is unbelieving jews if they do not remain in unbelief they will be grafted back in again because god has the power to graft them back in again i was once in conversation with a canadian scholar friend of mine who believed passionately that jews had to be saved by being good jews and christians could be saved by following jesus but there were these two tracks to salvation and I said, what about Romans 11? Ah, he said, it would be much easier for me if Paul had not written verse 23. <laughs> and I said, yes, it would, because it's actually pretty clear in the Greek or in the English translation that I just gave, if they do not remain in unbelief. Now, that is not to say about somebody like Jonathan Sachs that he was a man of, of, of unbelief. And of course, many Jews would say we, we are people of belief. It's just not your sort of belief. Um, because I, I've known many people who have been so bruised by either the church they've known or what the church has done in the past that they are simply physically, morally, emotionally incapable of uh, throwing their lot in with the church because it just seems to destroy everything that they've known and uh, seems to swallow up all the goodness that they've had in their lives into a, into a black hole. I understand that. Many Christians have been bruised by the church beyond belief. But when there is a shape of faith which I see as almost like a, a, a sort of an outline, a silhouette of a Jesus face, a Jesus-shaped faith, then I want to say to Paul, 
would that count? Is that the sort of thing that you meant? And I'm not sure that Paul is too specific about what that would look like. But at the heart of Romans 9 to 11, Romans 9 to 11 is a very carefully constructed whole. It's a balanced, what we call a chiasm with a beginning and an end which balance, then the bits balance all the way in. And the very middle of that is Romans 10, 1 to 13, when Paul answers his own question about the belief of the Jews. Paul has been in tears. He'd been weeping because the Jewish people don't believe. And he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Um, and then he says, for if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is Paul's answer to the big question of Romans 9 to 11. And to whistle past that and go on to a verse at the end of Romans 11, which says, and so all Israel should be saved, and take that out of context and say, there you are, all Jews are going to be saved. That cannot be what Paul means by all Israel. Now, this is an old question, and I don't think I've settled it now. There are articles on my shelves within reach which would take three or four different views of that. But that is the view that I have come to hold after years of study of this text. And though I wrestle with it frequently, I don't at the moment expect yeah. to change. Well, I'm just glad God's in charge on that front and not me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> You'll be able to judge things a whole lot better than either you, you or I can. Um, final question. Um, Catherine in Texas, talking of religion, says, you mentioned in one episode something about Gnosticism being the main religion in America for the last 200 years. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because you're not from America. Perhaps you're able to see things from a different perspective from those of us who are in the culture on a daily basis. Um, uh, I'd like to know whether you're correct in your analysis. The Gnostic belief system seems to be everywhere in America often disguised as Christianity in certain yeah. circles. Look forward to hearing about this. So, well, firstly, what do you mean by Gnosticism? Because I think most <laughs> people, when they think of Gnosticism, they think of the early church and these sort mm -hmm. of interpretations and novel writings and things that came along in the second yeah. or third century, um, claiming special insights that was hidden and so on. Uh, yeah. But you talk about Gnosticism also being a very present day phenomenon. Yes, yes. I, I think Gnosticism is, a, is a, a, a thing which comes back in cycles, as it were, and certain crises precipitate it. And I think we can see why it happened in the second century after the failure of the last great Jewish revolt, 132 to 135, uh, that many Jews seem to turn in on themselves and to be reading their scriptures, as it were, upside down with the heroes becoming the villains and vice versa, uh, and uh, saying that maybe the God who made this world is a bad God and maybe there's a different God and we have to find the spark of light in ourselves which means that we really belong to that other God and that this whole creation that we've thought was so good is in fact letting us down. It gets very complicated and if you plunge into the work of people like Arrhenius and Tertullian at the end of the second and early third century who are writing against early Gnosticism, you can very quickly feel that the ground is getting muddy under your feet and you're sinking in a morass of speculation on the part of the people that they're controverting. Um, so all that's going on, and there's been a huge amount of work done on it at a scholarly level. Um, what I've observed over many years now, and I think I first met this in the work of Harold Bloom, who was an American cultural critic, and it was he who said that Gnosticism is the default mode for American religion. And I've seen it in, in other places as well. I wrote about this in a little book after, this would be in, I think, 2006, 
that somebody discovered a manuscript which they decided to call the Gospel of Judas, and it was about Judas becoming the hero uh, rather than Jesus or whatever it was. And I wrote a little book on the basis of that called Judas and the Gospel of Jesus. And there is a chapter in there in which I have spelt out what I mean by modern Gnosticism, which explains why, as you say, the Dan Brown phenomenon has been a phenomenon. Because as in Dan Brown, which is full of conspiracy theories and secrets hidden within secrets hidden within secrets, that's how Gnosticism works. Gnosticism says, which is why conspiracy theories abound, especially in America right now. Right now, we're full of them. Yes, exactly. Social media is the worst catalyst for them as well. Exactly. And social media, I think, has accelerated um, this form of Gnosticism, which is that there is hidden knowledge. Gnosis is knowledge and Gnosticism is there are some of us who have this hidden knowledge and the great mass of people out there don't. And so we are the chosen, we are the special ones. And Gnosticism, this is one of the crucial things, Gnosticism is not a religion of redemption. It's a religion of revelation. It says Jesus comes to show you that you are one of the special ones. Now, this happens both very personally when people think, ah, now I have a secret that nobody else has. And that often plays out in terms right now of things like sexual ethics, for instance, where somebody says, this is the inner truth about me. And I therefore have to be true to it, even if the silly world out there doesn't recognize it there's a lot of movies which are about discovering who i really am and so it can become very personal very individualistic but also ever since the enlightenment in the 18th century it becomes massive and cultural because look at the word enlightenment the word enlightenment says we western europe and north america we are the ones who have found the key to knowledge and of course that's based on science and technology we've done all this stuff And therefore, we know the way the world is. The word know is crucial there. Therefore, we can look down from our lofty perch on the benighted nations to left and right. And, oh, they're having some trouble over there. And, oh, some people there, um, they they don't seem to have enough to eat. Well, that's too bad. but, But we are the ones that really count. And that kind of Western arrogance, which is typically British, I'm not going to say anything about America or France or Germany, but it's typical of the Western world, actually, that then becomes the default position for people religiously and they think oh I'm the special one I've got this hidden gnosis in myself now we could talk about this all day but that's that's what's at the heart of it and as I say it's in a lot of movies it's in a lot of novels it's it's in certainly a lot of churches where they actually teach that Jesus was not coming to save you from your sins but coming to reveal to you that you have the spark of something hidden within you and that God wants to bring that out And I think Paul, go back to Philippians 3, Paul would have said, there are many, therefore, who are living as enemies of the cross of the Messiah. But the cross says, Jesus came to die for your sins so that you should die to your sin and rise again to his new life as God's gift, not revealing some hidden truth Mm. within you. And so Gnosticism is a poison. We need to root it out of the churches. Every generation has to do that. But we need to see it in its larger cultural effects in terms of what that's forced or or allowed the West to do to the rest of the world. There's a major task here, and I can only just scratch the surface in what I've just said. 
we are only scratching the surface, but time is against us. So we'll have to leave that scratch, that scratch. <laughs> and perhaps we'll do another podcast where we dig a little deeper um, for the moment. Thank you very much, Tom, for your time. Thank you. uh, it's been fascinating to cover some of these questions and we'll see you, again you very much next time. Thanks for being with us on today's edition of the show, the final show of 2020. A very happy Christmas to you, wherever you're going to be celebrating Christmas. And uh, on the next edition of the show, which will be in January 2021, well, it'll be our 50th episode. Uh, In fact, we're going to be looking at issues around ecclesiology and church. But to celebrate 50 episodes of the show, we are giving away those three sets of Tom's books, God and the Pandemic and Broken Signpost. To be within a chance of winning, you simply need to be subscribed to our newsletter over at askntwrite.com. And as we approach the end of the year, if you feel able to support the show financially, that would be most welcome as well. Again, you can do that from the show page, askntwrite.com. And as a thank you, we'll send you Tom's exclusive ebook, 12 Answers to Questions on the Bible, Life and Faith. For now, thank you for being with us and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.